Uh, good morning, brothers. Good to see you all. You know, uh, uh, Lon's announcement, I, I know it has nothing to do with any recent event, but it did remind me of a letter that my daughter, who is now a freshman at the University of Tennessee, received from the uh, chancellor's office. The University of Tennessee is attempting to locate students in attendance at last night's game against Ole Miss, who were observed throwing objects from the stands onto the field. It is important to understand that students identified will not face any consequences for their actions. We just need a quarterback really bad. <clears throat> if you will have information related to this search, please contact the athletic department. Resourceful over there. Golf ball, yeah, don't, you can throw your trash in the floor. Don't throw a golf ball at me. I'd appreciate that. <clears throat> Let me find my clock here. You'll all appreciate that. We're at Matthew 23 today, looking at the whole chapter, and I think the way is going to be best for us to study it is to work through it. I'm going to read and comment on it. I will give you two big points for the outline first major one is the rules of shame. You'll see on your outline the rules of shame. And the second is the relationship of love. The rules of shame, the relationship of love. The rules of shame are in the middle verses, verses 13 to 36. And then the relationship of love is found in that which surrounds it. When I was getting dressed this morning, I went into the closet. I needed a, uh, a clean press shirt, which is hard to find this time of the week. And uh, I grabbed one, and it was this one, and it had a big yellow tag on the back of it with a big pin on it. And it said, defective before cleaning. Defective before cleaning. I thought I knew that. That's why I took it to the cleaners. I, it was defective from smell and from sweat and from, it was, uh, looked like it, I'd wadded it up and thrown it under the bed. And yes, I knew it was defective before cleaning. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to make it acceptable? Yeah. Before cleaning, am I supposed to wash it and iron it and press it? And when it's acceptable, take it to, I don't want to beat up on the cleaners. They're good people. But that's a great illustration of uh, how we sometimes feel or can make other people feel about uh, living with Christ, about coming to Christ. You need to, you're defective. And before Jesus can use you, before he can even clean you up, you need to clean yourself up. Make yourself more acceptable. Jesus not only opposes that, he pronounces woes on that. You don't have to know Greek to know that woe is bad. Woe means uh, Jesus is angry at something. He's pronouncing judgment, condemnation on. These seven attitudes that are found in the Pharisees 
are found in the minds of those who are staying away from Christ. So I'm not addressing all of us as Pharisees. I'm not addressing all of us as non-Pharisees. I'm addressing us as Jesus did, which was uh, he shoots in a barrel. If you don't want to get hit, you got to swim faster. That we take these as condemnations of any attitude, any perspective that discourages someone from getting close to Jesus. Let's start reading, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 23. And what we want to see is that um, Jesus is gracious. And because he is, he welcomes you. And because he is, he demands that you welcome others who need him as well. Jesus said to the crowds, everybody there, and to his disciples. Everybody needed this. Everybody needed the words that he was going to preach. His disciples needed it. Those who were not yet his disciples, those who were his enemies, everyone needed to hear what he had to say. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That is, they have this this role by which they teach the law. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries, those leather pouches with scripture in them, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You're all brothers, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Well, we know, we can tell already what Jesus is, um, is leaning into, this idea that there are teachers of the law uh, they're religious leaders, uh, those who are regarded as being uh, more spiritual than others, more mature, who are laying out conditions for other people and saying, these are the things you must do to be acceptable to God. And uh, we're going to tell you what they are. Now, don't require them of us because Uh, well, we have a different standard. What we want you, we want you to do what we tell you to do. This is uh, old-fashioned hypocrisy. And uh, we know it because we are perfectly capable of practicing it ourselves. Uh, How often have I heard in my own home, you preach to others, but you don't practice it yourself. I say, I, I, I I, I coach golf like I preach. I can always tell you what's wrong with your swing. I just can't put it into practice myself. And so Jesus leans into this and he says legalism is not to be tolerated. These these extra requirements, these conditions on being accepted 
before me, you're not in the role to make those requirements. It's appropriate that they sit on the seat of Moses, meaning it's appropriate to teach the law. He, he doesn't condemn them for teaching God's word, the, the law, the, the book, the Bible that they had so far from Genesis to Malachi. That is appropriate. You need to listen to what is being taught. The rules haven't gone away. What they're missing is the reason for the rules. What they're missing is the reason for the rules. Maybe you are too. Maybe you're trying to keep the rules, but you've ignored the reason. Maybe you're, trying, you're, you're insisting on other people keeping rules, but you ignore the reason. And the reason is, in a word, grace. God gives us his word, gives us his law, because he loves us. And he gives us his law initially to drive us to the end of ourselves and say, I can't do that. I can't, I'm supposed to be perfect. I'm supposed to be holy before I can be admitted into heaven. I can't do that. You're right, you can't do that. Come to the cross. You receive the righteousness of Christ. He's the only one who's done it perfectly. You receive that gift. Give him your sin. And then what do you do? Ignore the rules from then on? Absolutely not. Now they have new reason to keep the rules. I want, because I love Jesus so much, I want to strive to obey in response to grace, all the while asking him to enable me to do what I'm called to do. But that enablement of grace, that motivation of grace is left out of what these scribes and Pharisees are teaching. Even these disciples following Jesus, that's left out. And they're just saying, just do the law and you'll be acceptable. Now, how does Jesus kill legalism? <clears throat> how does Jesus kill legalism? This idea that, that if you keep the law, you'll be acceptable. He kills it by choking it out with love, the love of the gospel. Where do I get that? You got to back up to chapter 22. And you notice uh, in your Bible, there's the heading in verse 34, the great commandment. Here these same Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes come together and they ask, they're going to trick Jesus and they say, what, tell us what the greatest commandment is. Now, what are they asking? They're looking for, each one has their favorite commandment. You know, if you're a legalist, you're a perfectionist, you, what you do is, is, is that you pick the things that you like and that you're good at, and then you impose those on others. But your perfection or is, perfectionism or legalism doesn't include those things that you're not good at, right? You're selective. We, we are selective in our legalism. I have my standards, but... Uh, my standards are, uh, you know, not, they're, they're not universal because there are some things that I'm not good at or I'm consist, inconsistent at or I'm really sinful at, so I don't think about those. I just think about the ones that I'm good at, and that's the ones I'm going to impose. And so these scribes and Pharisees are saying, effectively, what's your favorite commandment? What's the, what's the best commandment? And there's some there that are going to say, keeping the Sabbath day holy. Why? Because... They're really good at keeping the Sabbath day holy. Or others are going to say, he better say the best commandment, the, the greatest commandment is obeying your parents because they really like that. But Jesus didn't fall for that trap. 
No, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you don't have to worry about which commandment is most important because that, that speaks to all the commandments. If you're striving, I'm going to put the Lord first in everything. I want to love him. You've, you've taken care of the first four commandments. I want to love my neighbor as myself. You've taken care of the last six. And then he follows by describing in verses 41 and following in chapter 22, the sonship of God relative to the Father, that love relationship between the Father and the Son. There is love. So before he leans into this problem of legalism, he says here is the nature of relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We love each other. Here's the relationship that exists between you and the law. Love God. Love your neighbor. And then he follows with, uh, at the end of the passage, on the other side, uh, this warm picture captured in in words of judgment, in verse 37, how often have I wanted to gather my children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You are not willing, but that is what I want to do. You see how he attacks legalism? He starts with his own love. God is love. And in his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And to have a relationship with him is to love him. And when you recognize that he has loved you so much that he's given his only begotten son for you, then there is no one that you can't love. And when you realize that he has accepted you, he has loved you, set his love on you before you were, uh, before the foundation of the world and called you to himself, then you'll quit putting conditions on other people that they have to live up to before you can love them. Insisting that they clean themselves up before you no longer regard them as defective. That's how Jesus attacks legalism. So with that in mind, I want you to look at these seven woes. That the only condition to coming to Jesus Christ, the only condition to receiving the love of the Father is to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. Anything else added to it is to be declared judged. The first woe is, in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter go in. Um... And then the next woe comes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The first one is, you shut the kingdom from those who would enter. From those who would enter. What are we saying to other people is a condition for being in the kingdom of God? We would never say it out loud. We would never say, now, before you can be in the kingdom of God. That is, before you can be under, in this kingdom that I'm a part of, where Jesus Christ is Lord, this is necessary. 
you have to think about politics exactly the way I do. We never say it that clearly, but can it be the strong impression we're giving? You, uh, <clears throat> you have to live in your marriage exactly the way I do. You have to think about worship exactly the way I do. You have to, on this issue that is facing us in our homeowners association, you have to vote the same way I do. We would never say that out loud, would we? What about to our children? What impression have our children gained from listening to us, from watching us? To be acceptable in the kingdom of God means that you have to approach your studies exactly the way I have envisioned for you. You need to pick the wife, the husband that I have envisioned for you, that our family has envisioned for our legacy. You have to choose the friends that I want, live in the proper part of the city or state. You need to get a particular kind of job. You need to respond to me the way I think is appropriate. You need to achieve the way I describe achievement. You need to be successful the way I describe success. What are the impressions that we're giving? Even if we don't say them ourselves, what impressions are we giving to other people that these are the conditions for being in the kingdom? Well, even as I say that, I'm convicting myself. And uh, what, what am I going to have to do? What, do? what do we need to do? We must repent of a lack of love. The antidote to this first woe, woe is to repent of a lack of love. It's not just quitting that, but it's proactively pursuing those around us with love. Not just those who meet our standards, but pursuing them with love. Pursuing people first with love. Remember what Jesus said? We know, or John said in his epistle, we know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Only if they agree with us. Only if they act like we do. Only if they look like we do. No, we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. If you're not loving, you're dead according to Scripture. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. When did he lay down his life for us? When we became acceptable? When we brushed ourselves off? When we thought the right way about things? Does he still withhold his love while we're sinless? Oh, praise the Lord, he doesn't. He loves us already today, and already today we have done, thought, said things that are a stench in his nostrils. A new command, John says, a new command Jesus says, I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by the proper way you worship. Or by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by the way you vote, by the way you dress, by the way you, by the neighborhood you live in. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. No, they'll only know you by one way, by the way you love one another. 
Let us repent of a lack of love. The second woe is found in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus is so insensitive, isn't he? They make converts. In other words, the second woe is this. They make converts worse than themselves. They make converts worse than themselves. This is perhaps the sin of perfectionism, again, legalism, of saying, I want you to be just like what I consider to be an obedient, faithful disciple. What do we, what's the antidote to it is to repent of perfectionism. Repent of perfectionism. It is to get <clears throat> the law and the gospel back in proper perspective. That we don't do certain things to make ourselves acceptable to Christ, neither do other people, but rather we, we preach the gospel of grace first. And that is what compels, empowers someone to live in obedience. Here's where John Calvin taught children in Geneva to think about obedience. He says, uh, <clears throat> the, the questioner asked um, uh, ask this, we are not therefore to think, this is, a, this is a, 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 a leading question, we are not therefore to think that the good works of believers are useless, the scholar says, certainly not. For not in vain does God promise them reward, both in this life and in the future. But this reward springs from the free love of God as its source. He first embraces us as sons, and then burying the remembrance of the vices which proceed from us, he visits us with his favor. Hence it follows that faith is the root from which all good things spring, so far as it from taking us off from the study of them. Calvin is saying, here's where obedience begins. It begins by recognizing the Father loves me. And the Father set his love on me before I was lovable. And in view of that, oh, Father, show me what you want me to do. Given how you have loved me, I want to love you obediently in response. A third woe is in uh, verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. For if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred, So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Sometimes sometimes when people tell me I'm not being nice in the pulpit, I say I'm a lot nicer than Jesus. I haven't called you blind men. (laughs) But what's Jesus saying? He's saying here's what you do with the truth here's here's the way you justify your pilfering your 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 self-absorption your 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 pursuit of profit it's you trick people 
And, uh, you, you know, you, you sell them something and you say, um, and uh, they say, well, is this genuine? And they say, I swear by the, I, I swear by Jerusalem it is. Oh, that sounds pretty good. And then they find out it's a fake. I didn't swear by the altar. You know, they made these false, kind of these false divisions. There were certain things, if you, you could, if you swore by a certain piece of the holy city, that didn't bind you. Only if you swore by a very, very certain piece. So you, uh, you swear by the altar, but uh, you haven't sworn by the gift on the altar. We chuckle at that, but how many times, how, what are our, how do we manipulate people or situations or loopholes to our profit? And maybe our profit isn't, uh, maybe it isn't gold. Maybe it isn't, maybe it isn't for, um, for a material gain. Maybe it's for, it's for the protection of our honor. That's a big thing for us Southerners. We're going to change the story. We're going to cast aspersion on someone else in order to make sure our name remains honored. What do we do? We must repent and see the throne of of God to see that someday we will appear before the throne of God. All things will be judged by him. It also means that we see the throne of God as an antidote to those who are trying to shame us or those who are manipulating us and or those forces that seem overwhelming to us and we're tempted to lose our hope We've got to see the throne. I get that from a, a phrase a, a, a friend of mine used to use as I would head to the pulpit and I'd be thinking, oh, this sermon is terrible. I don't know what's going to happen. He'd say, just see the throne. Look at the throne. Tell us what you want us to hear in view of that vision that Jesus is sitting on the throne. He's calling us home. He's also going to put all things right. In view of the way things are going to be regarded at the last day. How do you want to live today in terms of your own motivations, in terms of your own hopefulness? The fourth woe is they obey the letter but neglect the heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's a very important principle for, for ethics, <clears throat> and that is that we don't focus entirely on the letter of the law. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were saying, I have not committed adultery because I've never slept with a woman. He said, no, you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. You lust after a woman in your heart. I've, I've, uh, I've, not, I've not lied because I swore by the altar. I didn't swear by the gift on the altar. He says, here's the way you're going to make all your decisions about ethics. Is what you're doing just? Is it merciful? And is it faithful? And when I teach ethics in our seminary, I say there, there's, the, there's the ethics. Of, if you line up those three lights, you can make any ethical decision. 
Whatever decision is facing you in your personal life, as you review culture, as you think about it in your business, those are the three lights that you need to line up. You know how those barges come down the the Mississippi River and they line up that light and that light and that light, and that's how they tell they're in between. They're not running into the bank. That's what you do in ethics. Is it just? Is it equitable? Is this action merciful? Yes, I can technically, this is right, it's just, but it's not merciful. Well, not only is it just and merciful, is it also faithful to the God of the Scriptures? Not just to the technicalities of Scripture, but to the spirit of Scripture. Am I being faithful in my love to Jesus Christ and in response to his love to me? And when you line up those three lights or you pass it through those three funnels, whatever analogy you want to use, if it passes on the other side, that is a decision that God is pleased with. Is it just? Is it merciful? Is it faithful? Those are the weightier matters of the law. That's the heart of the law. So we repent of finding our identity in performance. That is, we repent of our finding identity in technicalities or merely in what other people tell us is acceptable. And we instead say, I'm going to make my decisions based on what is on the weightier matters of the law, on the heart of God, his justice, his mercy, and his faithfulness. The fifth woe is they clean the outside but leave the inside filthy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you've been to Israel, you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, you know on the, on the eastern side of Jerusalem, over the Kidron Valley, if you, you get a, 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 a panned out view, you see all these little white dots all over the hillside. And uh, if you're in the, in the, in the, the, um, the um, Garden of Gethsemane looking over, you see all these, these white concrete boxes uh, uh, dotting the hillside. Those are each one is a sarcophagus, they're sarcophagi. They're, they couldn't dig into the rocky hillside to bury somebody, so they, they built a, a, a box over the top of them and they put the bones in. And, and the way you keep them uh, socially acceptable is to paint them. So he said, you are like those sarcophagi when you, when you <clears throat> only focus on the outside of people or on your outside of your actions and not on the inside, you're like that whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Now, we must repent. We must repent, and some of these sound overlapping, but it's a little bit different from the one we just studied. studied. My, my, uh, the antidote, I say, is repent of treating people reductionistically. God never treats us as merely people who act. He treats us as those who have a heart, who have a soul, 
and he wants that heart and soul. And likewise, he demands that we treat other people the same way. We don't dehumanize other people. You know what, I, what, what I'm capable of when I'm watching a football game. That's just a quarterback, just a function. And I can yell at him and pronounce imprecations on him as if he's not a human being. You know, that changed when I became a father of a football, a college football player. I was looking around for anybody saying anything about, that's my, you can't talk about my son that way. It's not a son, he's just a nickelback, you know. Or how do we refer to our neighbors? Or how do we refer to politicians even? How do we refer to someone who is in a, a, a practice, a sin that is offensive to us? We repent of treating people reductionistically and, and we want to view people the same way God views us. He doesn't reduce us to whitewashed sepulchers. He looks on us in the inside. He wants to put those bones back together. The sixth, uh, sixth woe is, I think I got ahead of myself. Sixth woe is whitewashed sepulchers. Whatever fifth was, I forgot. Seventh woe is <clears throat> they lack repentance. They lack repentance. The last one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. <clears throat> you build the tombs of the prophets, decorate the monuments of the righteous if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who, <clears throat> that you are murdered, who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barakiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar truly I say to you all these things will come upon this generation now Jesus alludes to a point that uh, makes us really nervous and that is to look back at the sins of our forefathers and to declare them what they are. To declare them as sins. It doesn't mean that we, tell, we say that our forefathers are going to hell for those sins. But repentance of your forefathers' sins in the Bible means I look at them, I identify them, and I say those were sins. Yes, they may have been saved as I have to be saved regardless of my behavior. But that was a sin. And I'm going to call it that because I must turn away from it and I must teach my children to turn away from the same. Jesus said, you need to look at what your forefathers did and identify it as rejecting the sins of the prophets. You even killed them. You shed innocent blood. You need to look squarely at those sins because you're imitating them. And so you must repent. And every generation must 
by definition, we must live in a posture of repentance, which means not that it's repentance is not walking around constantly putting ashes on your head, wallowing in your guilt. Repentance is literally turning. And repentance means I'm literally constantly turning away from following the instincts of my genetics or my upbringing or my culture or or my, my natural disposition, I'm constantly turning away from that to Christ to say, I want to be exactly like Christ is. I want to be just and merciful and faithful. So my, my, that's never intuitive to me. It's never natural. What's natural to me is to ask around me, how can I fit in? What is everybody else thinking? That's what I want to be. Know that we constantly turn away from that and say, Christ, who do you want me to be? regardless of what anybody else is thinking or doing. That's what repentance is. Jesus doesn't want us wallowing in our guilt. We're useless if we're wallowing in guilt. We're not doing what he wants us to do. Repentance is turning constantly to Christ. Well, those are the woes. The antidote to that last one is to believe in the gospel. Is to, is, to, is to look squarely in the face of your own sin, your forefathers' sins. It is to look squarely in the face of your culture's sins, your family's sins, and say, we are hopeless without the gospel of Christ. You knew this about us before we even became aware of us, and you chose to love us anyway. In view of that love, I, want, I hate all the more this sin, this departure from being like Christ, and I turn back to you. Please, Lord Jesus, capture me afresh with your love. Well, quickly, in summary, I have this second major point. That it's the relationship of love that is the, is the overall antidote to this, these rules of shame. Just two comments under this big point. The first one is only one cross. There's only one cross for you and me to carry. And secondly, um, we serve only one God who has a gracious heart. Ours is the only God with a gracious heart. There's only one cross for you to carry. I get both those points from what Matthew has said earlier on in chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. You remember this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you've been living under the rules of shame, trying to measure up, trying to, trying to fulfill the expectations of those placed on you from your past or around you, you're exhausted. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. If you've been trying to make everybody around you live up to these rules, that you have or you've, you've uh, discerned, that's exhausting too. It's exhausting to be a policeman for the human race. And so, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, take my yoke upon you. Does he say, now, there are no rules for you. Just live however you, however you want to. No, he says, take my yoke upon you. A, a yoke, you farm boys know, had two places in it sometimes. One for 
one mule and the other mule? Well, Jesus has a two-place yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you because his yoke includes he's in the other part. Come on, let's, you want to find rest for your souls? Then quit trying to live this life and force everybody else to live it the exhausting way you're prescribing. Come into my yoke with me. I'll bear it with you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. No matter the cost, it's lighter when you're doing God's will. My burden is, and because I am gentle and lowly in heart. You know, this is the only place in the Bible where the heart of Jesus is described. The only place in the Bible where the heart of Jesus is described is Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 and 29. And how is the heart of Jesus described? A heart for perfection, a heart for demand. No, he's gentle and lowly. How many crosses are you trying to carry? How many crosses are you trying to lay on other people? There's only one cross. It's Jesus. When you bear that cross, it's not going to be easy. But at least you know you're bearing the right one, regardless of who agrees with you or doesn't. And you're bearing it for one who loves you, who is gentle and lowly in heart and is bearing it with you. You're trying to live the Christian life on the basis of your own works, your own success. Are you giving the impression to anybody else that the way to live it is to perform? And let us repent of that. I'll close with the story of a friend of mine who couple of us share this common friend. He's a pastor in South Florida. And uh, he was, he, he uh, I could tell you much more about his life, show you how tragic it was growing up, but <clears throat> he, um, he and his sister grew up in a very uh, abusive home, a very unloving home. And in fact, he and his sister had to go to foster care, go into foster care when they watched their mother get beaten to get to death by a, by a man with a hammer who was living with her. They lived in, in foster care until he was in his teens, which meant that he, was, he, in his mind, was never going to get out. He was abused in the foster care system, abused by those who ran the the particular home he was in, shamed terribly. One day, a couple came by the orphanage, and, and they were an older couple, so they didn't qualify to adopt a baby or a, a young child. So they said, uh, these, these are the two children we have. And so they picked him and said, we'd like to take him out to dinner. So they took him out, and uh, they, uh, he's, I don't know, in his young teens, and <clears throat> they took him bowling. And uh, he thought, you know, if I can just bowl strikes, they'll want me to be their child. They bowled nine gutter balls in a row. And then they took him out to eat. 
Take them to a Chinese restaurant. If I can just eat with chopsticks, they'll want me to be their child. He plunged his chopsticks in and, 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 and dumped the whole bowl of noodles into the man's lap. Well, he was speechless all the way back to the orphanage and head down his chin down on his chest. He said, well, I guess, I guess I won't be going to your home. What are you talking about? You're going to be our son. But I, I bowled nine gutter balls. I couldn't eat with chopsticks. You think we came here to find some, a good bowler? You think we came here to find somebody who could eat with chopsticks? No, you are Bobby Peterson. We determined to love you as soon as we saw your picture. We took you out to see if you wanted to be with us. We chuckle. It is a sweet story. But how often do we respond to God thinking, I bowled another gutter ball. I guess you can't use me anymore. Or the impression we give to others, if you can just eat with spiritual chopsticks, you could be in the same level of Christianity I am. Instead we say, Jesus loves you. God loved you so much he gave his only begotten son. You just believe on him. You'll have eternal life. That's a message you know you need not only for the beginning of the Christian life, for every single step of it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> we thank you for speaking so strongly to us because we need to be roused out of our unbelief. Some of us need to be roused out of our doubts, out of our shame, out of our unworthiness. And so you've You've taken us by the shoulders. You've shaken us. And others of us are living quite confidently and so confidently that we're, we're prescribing conditions for other people to be in the same kingdom we are, and we have to be shaken. We thank you that you don't let go of us after you shake us. You turn us around and stare us straight in the eye and remind us that you love us. We pray we'd be so captivated by your loving attention that we would imitate it to others today. In Jesus' name, God's men said, amen. amen.